Thanks so much for being with us today. We're spending a good portion of the show today talking about politics, the vote taking place in, I say in Ottawa, but only some of the MPs are in Ottawa, as we know, many of them voting remotely. And there were some technical difficulties earlier today voting remotely. So we will bring those results to you as soon as they are available. But earlier today, we did hear from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh saying that his party, he and other NDP MPs uh, were not going to be doing anything to hand the election to Justin Trudeau. So again, uh, the vote going on right now appears to be unfolding as we would expect uh, with the Conservatives, the Bloc, uh, voting in favour of that motion, the Liberals against, and uh, we will again continue monitoring that and bring you the results as soon as they are available. I want to check in now, though, with Chris Sims, who is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're talking about something else. It does have to do with federal politics, but because we are in a provincial election, probably more timely talking about this on a provincial level. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. I'm watching the vote, too. <laughs> Last I saw, there was a technical glitch, but it looks like uh, the NDP is siding with the Liberals. So. Yes. All right. That And that's uh, what uh, Jagmeet Singh said earlier. And uh, not a surprise that uh, a bit of a technical glitch. There have been a few of those, but yeah, just a few. <laughs> we will get through. Uh, thanks so much for, for joining us today. You have been writing about uh, the idea of how many tax dollars are going to political campaigns, and in some cases, how people might not know about that uh, kind of shift in policy that has led us to this place. Yes, exactly. And so uh, back a few years ago, in 2017, uh, there was a big shift where they stopped allowing for large, large donations coming from both sides, quote-unquote, of the political spectrum. So no huge union donations and no gigantic corporate donations. Uh, Sometimes those two things, of course, can be mixed, but for simplicity's sake, that's what they're cut out. The catch is, is that they started taking money from taxpayers instead. And so a lot of listeners may not know that those attack ads that you're hearing and seeing online, uh, those lawn signs all over the place and the junk mail in your mailbox, you're paying for that. In fact, it's about $16 million over four years, plus a political party after the election can then call up Elections BC and get 50%, half of their expenses, quote-unquote, reimbursed. Taxpayers are paying for that too. So when you add it all up, it's around $27 million of taxpayers' money that is going to political parties. And again, this is not for Elections BC. This isn't for ballots and pencils and stuff. This is literally for campaign literature and their offices. Which is very different. And I think if you were to ask people, would you be okay funding Elections BC? Absolutely. Or even yeah. Elections Canada. I mean, look at what's happening in the, in the United States where they don't have a similar body to oversee elections. I think we're all very happy to have Elections yeah. BC and Elections Canada. But that's very different from taxpayer dollars going to, uh, like you said, attack ads, lawn signs, and for the actual campaign. Yes, this is partisan party politics, and we're paying for it. And I doubt many people actually realize that. Um, In fact, we've seen this at the federal level. Uh, Some of your more keen political observers would probably remember uh, back during uh, the crisis with Prime Minister Stephen Harper when he prorogued Parliament. One of the reasons for him proroguing Parliament is that the opposition tried uh, teaming up together to overthrow him because he was getting rid of the per-vote subsidy, which is the nicer version of what we call politician welfare or political welfare. And again, 
And he said, you know what? If your ideas are so awesome, go fundraise on them. And we feel the same way. If you want to keep out big union and big corporate donations, fine. If you want to keep a cap on the donations, fine. But go raise your own money. Go virtually door-to-door, hold a telethon, start a GoFundMe. We don't care. And we don't care which party it is. But go raise it on your own merit and your own ideas and get free will donations from British Columbians. Don't take it automatically from taxpayers. What was the justification when this first was brought in as far as uh, under uh, the, the Jean Chrétien government federally and then provincially? The thinking on that side of it was in order to encourage other parties to get involved in the political system, which we think is great. If you want to start a new party, that's awesome. But we draw the line at automatically taking money directly from taxpayers. You know, it's just fundamentally unfair. We also need to keep in mind that taxpayers already, without the per vote subsidy, uh, already fund them to a great extent because of the huge generous nature of the tax credits that political parties get. A lot of folks don't know this either, that if you make a big uh, any donation to a political party, you get a way bigger tax credit back than you do for donating to a charity. So if you do donate money to any of the political parties, much more money back than you do to, say, Terry Fox Foundation or the Ronald McDonald House for Children. <laughs> and with the the per vote subsidy, though, and, and I think and, and both of those are, are a bit a bit mind boggling when you look at the, the difference, especially comparing it to a charity or where mm-hmm. those those tax dollars are actually going. Do you see any? I, I'm guessing it's not it's not something that the parties really want to talk about unless you make it part of your platform and say we are going to get rid of this, which it doesn't appear anybody is doing that. No, exactly true. Uh, only certain parties seem to really tune into this stuff. Um, back when I was just chatting on Twitter uh, with BC Liberals, I think it was a couple of years ago, it sounded like they wanted to get rid of what we would call a vote tax or politician welfare. But now, uh, last we've heard online is that they're go- they want to let it eventually die on its own. It's technically scheduled to end at the end of the year 2021. But we're not going to hold our breath. As we know, once these things get embedded, it's really hard to get rid of them. We want it gone like yesterday. Uh, But we don't see anybody committing to doing that. I did see online that the B.C. Conservatives want to get rid of it. But, of course, they don't have a seat in in, uh, the legislature yet. Uh, does it seem uh, off to you or, or a, a bit uh, a bit strange that we do spend so much time talking about union donations, uh, different uh, types of capping donations and making sure there's a level playing field there or that there's not a perceived or real advantage on the one hand, but then seem to think it's OK or the parties seem to think it's OK to just take that money from all of the taxpayers instead? Yes, it's super weird. And when you get down to the personal level, if you're an NDP supporter, do you want your tax money going to the B.C. Liberals and vice versa? If you're a big fan of the B.C. Liberals, do you want your money going to the NDP or the Greens? Probably not. And again, if, you, if you're not interested in politics, do you want your tax dollars going to the partisan activities of a political party? We doubt it. And again, if your party has great ideas, they start. Like these things catch on like wildfire. People like them. That's the whole point of democracy. And they will willingly donate their money to you. That is how these things organically start. We don't think that it should be automatically getting money from taxpayers. Uh, but at this point, doesn't look like anything's going to change anytime soon? Not at this point, but we, I wrote the piece to really highlight what this money is. And when you add up $27 million, I did the math, that could have instead paid for the annual salaries of 90 paramedics for six years. Instead, 
It's attack ads and lawn signs. Just a quick update for you. As you likely heard in the news, confidence vote defeated 180 to 146. The Conservatives and the Bloc voting in favour. Everyone else, including two independents, voting against. That means there will be no snap federal election. If you were concerned about a federal election being called, rest assured, this is not going to be the vote that does it. There will not be a snap federal election. So we can now go about our day focusing focusing on the provincial election and all of the other things making news today. The possibility of a federal election now officially avoided, not going to happen. We'll have more analysis of this coming up throughout the rest of the day. We are going to shift gears a little bit now and taking a look at the Site C Dam. That has been brought up as part of many of the election uh, discussions here in BC and some new documents that were released through a freedom of information request by a reporter at the Narwhal have come to light and there's an article in the Narwhal today by reporter Sarah Cox and Sarah Cox joins me on the line now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Um, I should just ask you first for people that aren't familiar with the Narwhal what exactly is the Narwhal? The narwhal, if you imagine the environmental section of your paper that no longer is, that is the narwhal. We cover uh, Canada's natural world. We are fact-based, science-based, evidence-based, and we are non-profit. All right. Now, you uh, at the narwhal put in this request for more documents. It sounds like it took quite some time to get them. It did indeed. It always takes time to get freedom of information documents. In this case, it took almost seven months. And so now that you have them and you've written this article about Site C, uh, looking at what exactly people knew about the construction, about the site, about uh, some concerns, uh, what did you find from these documents? Well, the documents show that back in May 2019, uh, top BC civil servants, including the senior bureaucrat who prepares Site C Dam documents for the BC cabinet, knew that the project faced serious geotechnical problems due to what was called a weak foundation. And when uh, at the end of July, overdue BC Hydro reports were finally released to the public, uh, we were told that uh, the extent of these problems had only come to light over the past few months. Now, that may well be the case that uh, the problems had deepened, but these documents show that there were already very, very uh, serious uh, problems that the project was facing more than a year before that information was released to the public. And we've talked about it, or it has come up in some discussions during the election campaigns about that, about the risk and the foundation. The Premier, uh, John Horgan, the leader of the the NDP, uh, was asked about that. He said that he was going to wait for for more scientific reports and more evidence from that before he would take, and I think the quote was the appropriate action. Uh, Do you think this will lead to change or what kind of a sense are you getting from people uh, as far as reaction to this information? Well, I think the most important thing is that we need full transparency about this project, which has been sadly lacking up until now. It has been basically surrounded by secrecy. It's been very hard to get information. The public is only finding things out long after the government and BC Hydro knew them. So I think that is the very first thing and that this report that is coming out needs to be uh, made public in its entirety. But I think we can also take a step back and look at uh, what has been happening over the last few years 
years when the NDP government newly elected decided to proceed with the project uh, at the end of 2017. They created a new board that was supposed to be an oversight board looking at the project to make sure that it stayed on budget and on time. And um, these documents actually are the documents from that Site C Project Assurance Board. And uh, all along, the findings of the Assurance Board have been kept secret by the government, which should have been a red flag right from the get-go. So I think, first of all, we need transparency for the public. This is a publicly funded project. It's the largest publicly funded infrastructure project in BC's history, and it's 100% debt financed. Uh, It seemed interesting to me, too, and you've touched on this in the piece, uh, that BC Hydro, uh, back in July, uh, saying uh, that they're not certain now exactly uh, if the completion date of 2024 is feasible or how much it's going to go above the budget, which is keep going, has gone up by billions since the beginning. That's right. So the project was first announced by the previous Liberal government. It's a $6.6 billion project. It subsequently went up um, to the high $8 billion and then up to $10.7 billion. Now, according to one expert report that was published last week, we could be looking at another $2 billion. And that has um, some people, including the C.D. Howe Institute, saying that if costs rise anymore, it's going to be cheaper to cancel the project. Uh, you're, you've quoted as well Harry Swain. He was the chair of a joint review panel that t- took a look at Site C, the project uh, for governments on both the federal and provincial uh, level. What did Harry Swain have to say or uh, about this? Well, one of the things that Harry Swain said was that he highlighted the fact that the project is proceeding in what he called doggone secrecy. And he said that that's not at all common in large public projects of any kind. And Swain chaired the joint review panel that looked at Site C for the provincial and federal governments. And later he came to speak out against the project, in part because he said that the joint review panel's findings were being taken completely out of context by the government to move the project forward. And so he calls this a matter of grave public concern, points out that taxpayers or ratepayers are going to wind up paying for this. And he's calling for an immediate halt to the project while it receives a full independent uh, examination. Uh, Do you get the impression from this as well that, I mean, it is something that's being used politically, uh, like you said, they said it it was uh, brought forward, uh, a liberal project, it was an NDP cabinet that that approved it, Uh, the Premier, or John Horgan again, now saying that he's waiting to get more advice. Do you think that, and looking at these documents, does it show more about how it's become a a bit such, it's not just building a dam, it's a very political issue? It is a political issue, but I think ultimately it comes down to what's good for BC ratepayers and what is good for BC taxpayers, and that the decision needs to be based on that and not on what's good for any particular political party. Uh, and do, do the documents themselves, when you look at the, the struggles, the geotechnical issues that were raised, the safety issues raised, how, how concerning do you think that those, those are? Oh, they're very concerning. I spoke to one U.S. energy expert, Robert McCullough, and um, he said that he he examined the do- some of the documents and said that what we're talking about is a possible lack of stability under the dam itself. It's very, very serious. Um, basically, that the Site C project is located in an area filled with faults that can become stressed during fracking operations. There are earthquakes in the area. The Site C dam construction site was evacuated in November 2018 following an 
earthquake. And it also, the dam has an unconventional uh, design. It's an L-shaped design. Um, it's not known whether there are any other earthen dams with this L-shape. The speculation is that it was changed to this because of un- instability on the bank. Um, we're talking about whether or not the dam will be safe, whether or not the dam will be stable. And of course, on top of the um, public investment in this, we have the very real uh, concerns from downstream communities who, of course, would be the ones to um, suffer the most were there something to go wrong with this dam if it is to be completed. And did you get the sense or, or what sense do you get of how many people already knew what were in these documents? Well, this Public Assurance Board knew what was in the documents. The Public Assurance Board uh, presumably was conveying this to the government. Um, if they if they weren't conveying that, then questions need to be asked about why it wasn't conveyed. So the two government representatives on the board uh, certainly knew this. There are also four BC Hydro directors on the Site C Project Assurance Board, um, as well as uh, represent as well as actually the um, former chief engineer for the Site C project. So all of these people were privy to this information. The information about the rising geotechnical risks was uh, from the Site C Project's Technical Advisory Committee. I previously asked for Technical Advisory Committee, uh, uh, Technical Advisory Board documents under uh, Freedom of Information requests, and all I received basically were redactions. But in this case, the the, um, documents and their reports were included. All of those reports went in full to the Site C Project Assurance Board. And if that wasn't conveyed to uh, political leaders, then some very big questions need to be asked about why that didn't happen. And just wanted to touch as well, you talked to uh, the retired chair of Newfoundland's Public Utilities Board, looking at some of the comparisons with what's happening here to what happened with the Muskrat Falls Dam. Yes, so the Muskrat Falls Dam has been called a boondoggle by the uh, CEO of the Crown Corporation that's building it again. It started out in around uh, $6 billion. It's now at $13.1 billion and it's three years behind schedule. The earliest it will produce power is next fall. And Newfoundland is in a far less um, robust financial position than British Columbia. And if there is not uh, some form of um, bailout, likely a federal bailout, so federal taxpayers would be paying for this, then uh, people in Newfoundland are looking at a minimum 50% increase in their hydro bills to pay for this project. The one thing about these big dam projects is that they don't actually actually come on. The bill doesn't come due until power starts to be produced. All right, Sarah, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much, though, for joining us and talking more about this. You are very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Well, coming up this half hour before uh, we sign off for the day, the amount of people who have called the buzz line and emailed me with songs that make you cry, I think it's the most response that we've had to a question. Certainly up in the top five, for sure. Appreciate all of the people who have done that. Uh, The reason we're talking about that today is because of the exchange between Dolly Parton and Stephen Colbert on his show last night. She started singing a song her mother sang to her, he welled up with tears. And so we wanted to ask the question, is there a particular song out there that makes you 
cry. And if you still want to email me, you can jill at cknw.com or give the buzz line a call. They're going to be talking about this next up on the Linda Steele show as well. Before we get to that, though, we want to revisit a story that has been in the news this week, a controversial proposal that did pass, talking about Yaletown being the next location for a permanent opioid overdose prevention facility. City Council has been talking about that. Many people signed up to talk to Council about it. The plans were approved yesterday. And our show contributor, John Jang, now has more on that story. Good afternoon, Jill, and thank you very much. I'm now joined by Isaac Malmgren. He is the Associate Director for the Rain City Housing and Support Society, which operates the existing overdose facility at St. Paul's Hospital, and they'll be the ones taking command of this new facility in Yaletown. Isaac, really thank you for your time here today. And first of all, uh, what's your big reaction to the big news now that we know this is official and it's finally happening? Yeah, I mean, just, you know, we're incredibly grateful for the ability to continue to operate in a new location that's going to provide even better support and accessibility for the folks who need it in that community. Um, you know, it was, a, it, it, it was a process that a lot of people put a lot of thought and a lot of work into, and I think we heard some, um, some really strongly voiced opinions on both sides of some debate, but the, you know, the undeniable fact is that this is a necessary life-saving resource, and we're really excited to um, be able to get to work with our partners at Vancouver Coastal Health, and I'm really grateful for all of the work behind the scenes that went into it. Isaac, we're obviously living through a global pandemic, but we're also, as you very well know, we're in the middle of an opioid crisis, one that has been taking lives longer than COVID-19 has. So how can this new facility help the community with both of these very real dangers that are still happening today? Absolutely. And I mean, you know, mentioning the COVID-19 crisis is really pertinent here. It's not only has the opioid um the poisoning epidemic been going on significantly longer. It's claimed significantly, like magnitudes more lives, um, you know, precious human lives. And um, the COVID-19 crisis, unfortunately, a lot of our responses that work really well for infection control are actually making um, people who use illicit drugs, uh, putting them in significantly more danger of, of death and overdose. So, um, so, so grateful and so excited to, yeah, keep doing this really important life-saving work. Personally, I think you've done a great job explaining how this helps everybody, but let's be honest, this was a controversial uh, proposal because while most people agree the facilities have a purpose, there has been pushback from residents of that neighborhood because they don't necessarily want to have this kind of an operation existing in their communities. What is your response to people who have adamantly tried to get this project shut down, at least preventing it from existing in Yaletown? Yeah, so I mean, I think that this is, there's there's a lot of concern and, and fear and worry that comes up when people think about some of the harm that can be caused by um, cr- drug criminalization and some of the ways that people may have experienced you know, friends and family being harmed by being involved in um, in those dynamics. And so, um, you know, people worry about the idea of a service like this sort of drawing, um, you know, d- dangerous elements into their community. Um, the reality is the reason that we set up these services where they are is because there are people using drugs in those communities already. 
So when, you know, when Vancouver Coastal Health looks at where do we need to target overdose prevention services, it's where overdoses are already happening. It's where people are already using drugs in community. And so the reality is we're not attracting anyone. What we're doing is providing a safer space indoors for people to engage in those activities in ways that are going to have less impact on the surrounding community. Now, we also understand that some city councillors are unhappy with the way things went down. One NPA councillor saying that the process was compromised because this vote didn't require the usual two-thirds majority. Uh, What would you say in response to the criticism that this project was approved in a rather disingenuous manner? Well, I mean, I'm certainly no expert in in council process, and I, you know, I I was sort of along for the ride. Ultimately, my understanding is that these services, as mandated by the ministerial order in 2017, um, should be operated wherever they're needed without any sort of consultation. So I think the fact that the council was involved and able to participate in the conversation about sort of how best to approach the service is really positive. Um, I think it's great that a lot of people in the community had a venue to speak their mind and for us to be able to respond and sort of think about those things going forward. But ultimately, um, as I say, you know, it, it would actually be extraordinary for a process like that to stop a service like this from operating. And again, I'm really glad that it's going to continue as the essential health service that it is. Now, one of the other benefits, aside from having a full-time overdose prevention facility in Yaletown, is that the other facility, a mobile van actually, uh, will now be freed up from its current spot in that neighborhood, and now it can be dispatched to wherever else it's needed. So is it fair to say that this kind of benefits other neighborhoods as well? Exactly. It can be deployed where it's needed. And again, you know, that'll be a Vancouver Coastal Health sort of decision based on all of their expertise and the data that they hold. But I think it does free up even more sort of life-saving interventions in other areas of the city that aren't currently being served. So we're really in support of that as well. And finally, before we let you go, how soon can we expect this new facility in Yaletown to officially open? So at this point, you know, we've just kind of gotten the hot off the press news that we are going to be approved for the lease or that Vancouver Coastal Health will be, which is great. Um, You know, we we need to put a lot of thought and consideration into how best to operate the service, both in terms of um, the correct protocols for COVID-19 precautions at the site um, and making sure that we're getting the site set up properly. So I would say, you know, hopefully by Christmas we'll have the site open and ready to serve the public. Um, but that's going to be sort of TBA based on our planning with Vancouver Coastal Health. So, All right. He is Isaac Malmgren, Associate Director for the Rain City Housing and Support Society. Isaac, thank you so much for your time here today and congratulations on the new facility. Thanks so much. Have a great day.